Oh God, You made that promise. We hold You now to that Word. Don't forsake us now. Let this teaching be as clear as it is possible. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Do you know what tomorrow is besides Sunday? Tomorrow evening at sundown commences the holiest day of the year for our Jewish friends. Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. Which means that right now, Jewish families all over this planet are scurrying about preparing their hearts and their homes for what begins tomorrow night at sundown. The very day, by the way, God decreed to Israel long, long ago in the wilderness. Tenth day, seventh month. So I'm thinking about Yom Kippur and I'm, I'll Google it. What can I learn in contemporary Judaism about this day? found a website, kabad.org. Read these words. I'll put, it on, put, put them on the screen for you. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. Now, I love this. The day on which we are closest to God and to the quintessence of our own souls. End quote. Did you know from that quotation that this Orthodox site reflects the Jews' sacred regard for the holy name? That's, that's not a, that wasn't a typo. Capital G dash D. I learned that a few years ago when one of our viewers to our telecast went to our website after the telecast, found our address, sent me an email, and described herself as a Jewish, Jewish feminist psychologist. Wow. She had found that website. She wanted to write and tell me that she had discovered an American author who was obviously an American feminist as well. The name of the author, Ellen White. The book that this Jewish feminist psychologist was so moved by was The Desire of Ages, that classic on the life of Christ. That began, for me, a correspondence with a delightful woman. She, she always signed off her emails, Fig. A correspondence and carried on over several years until she died. Along the way in that correspondence, she told me that she was being led deeper and deeper into the conviction that she had found the Messiah in Christ. Every letter of hers that mentioned the name of God spelled it just like that, capital G dash D. Let me read again from this website on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year, the day on which we are closest to God and to the quintessence of our own souls. It is the day of atonement. Then this website quotes from the great Yom Kippur chapter of Scripture, Leviticus 16. 
Quoting, for on this day he will forgive you to purify you, that you may be cleansed from all your sins before God. For 26 hours, the website goes on, from several, several minutes before sunset on Tishrei 9, that would be tomorrow, to after nightfall on Tishrei 10, that would be Monday, we, now barring language from Leviticus 16, we afflict our souls. We abstain from food and drink. Yom Kippur, for our Jewish friends, obviously a day of intense spiritual focus. So what's that, what's that got to do with the likes of you and me on homecoming weekend? What if, so here's the question, what if we discovered that we are living right now, not tomorrow evening, but right now, in God's final Yom Kippur Day of Atonement? What if it were true that as alumni as students, as faculty, as inhabitants on this planet, we are living in God's final strategic salvation history chapter. The final day of judgment. The last Yom Kippur. If it were true, how could we ever be the same again? Open your Bible with me, please, to that chapter quoted on this website, Leviticus 16. Let's take a look at Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16, fascinating, fascinating chapter. We've already been to it once in this series. We now move to verses we we must not miss. Leviticus chapter 16, by the way, if you you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. You're going to want to follow this. That'll be the New King James, the Pew Bible, and it'll be page 81 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to be in the New International Version with you. Right now, Leviticus chapter 16, let's pick it up near the end of the, near the end of the drama. Verse 29, Leviticus 16:29. God speaking through Moses to the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. God speaking, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you on the tenth day of the seventh month. You must deny yourselves. Now, there's that quotation pulled into that website. The, the Old King James and the New King James both render it, you must afflict yourselves. You take the NIV, drop down to the uh, footnote. Scholars believe those, that is wording, calling only sacred day of the calendar, the only holy day where God commands fasting. So on that day... God says through Moses, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native born or an alien among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you, key word, to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of rest and you must deny yourselves. There it is again. It is a lasting ordinance. Clearly a somber day of reckoning for the community of God. Wouldn't you agree? Have to be. And why shouldn't it be? For only on this day, only on Yom Kippur, would the high priest as the personal representative of the people before God, with his trembling hand, draw aside that heavy, thick, ornate veil into the most holy place, that perfect cube of space, where hovering in midair was the fiery Shekinah glory of God's palpable, Visible, physical presence. Or as our friend Roy Gain puts it, God's lethally glorious presence. Hovering right over that solid gold piece of brick called the mercy seat. 
hovering suspended in midair on this single day of the year while the entire community of faith was bowed upon their faces in the sand in earnest prayer, the high priest would enter the most holy place and there with the thick billowing ascending smoke of a censer filled with incense to hide his face from the glory of God. There Aaron was to sprinkle. By the way, not daub as he will on the ark of sacrifice outside. He was not to touch under penalty of death, that golden piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. He was to sprinkle it once, the blood of a goat, once on that solid gold slab, and then seven times in front of it, thus performing what we call the cleansing of the sanctuary. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Verse 31 again, It is a Sabbath of rest. And you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. Verse 32. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments. In verse 33, make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar and for the priest and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Verse 34. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. We asked ourselves last time, I mean, how could it be? Is it possible? You can take the blood of a goat and somehow cleanse a building and a people by sprinkling that that blood. How could it be possible at all? And so last time, I brought, those of you who were here, I brought the blood of a goat into the worship service. I thought about doing it again today, but you know what? To extract that blood from that poor creature one more time, just for the sake of the alumni. Forget it. (laughs) Thanks to my friend Dr. Holly, our veterinarian in town, and Kathy Cudell, who's with the uh, agriculture department here at Andrews University. We got the blood last time. Listen, let's spare that. Let's spare that goat. And let me run a let me run the clip for you on the screen. The moment when we brought the the blood out. I want you to watch the blood from last time right here on the screen. I want to take some of this blood and I want to ask you, is it possible for this blood to cleanse? I mean, my reaction is when you have this You get goat's blood on you. To me, now to be honest, to me, that doesn't look like it cleans. That looks like it stains. A bloody glove. A bloody glove and a single question. How can the blood of a goat possibly cleanse anybody? So I'm flying back 35,000 feet Monday night and I'm having a conversation with my friend Angel Rodriguez. He's doing all the talking. Because I'm reading his book, his latest book, coming back from a preaching appointment last weekend. Title of his book, Spanning the Abyss, How the Atonement Brings God and Humanity Together. And he shared something I have never seen before and I'm passing it on to you. You'll need your study guide right now in order to get this. So grab your study guide. It's... Alumni, it's what's tucked in your worship bulletin. And by the way, if three or four of you alumni came in with one bulletin, you're going to need your own study guide. So hold your hand up. We've got our friendly ushers ready to service you. Just hold your hand up. 
You're in overflow in the youth chapel. You're in the back in the balcony. Just hold your hand up. We'll get those study guides to you. And those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you as well. Get this study guide. You can get it on our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. WW, you see it there? www.pmchurch.tv. Go to our website, please. You're looking for the series, the new series, The Temple. Now, this is part four. This is entitled, The Temple on Yom Kippur. If, by the way, you missed the first three teachings, you'll be able to pick this one up right where it is. But if you missed the first three, you can go to that website and ask for the podcast. They're all there, video or audio. In fact, alumni, if you'd like to subscribe to Pioneer's podcast, you may do so. We'll make sure that every time one goes on that website, it's sent to you as well. So go to that website. You're looking for... uh, the temple on Yom Kippur, we're looking for the, the word study guide. Those of you on the, on the uh, net right now, looking for the word study guide, click on. You'll have the same study guide we do. Let's plunge into this. I'd like to begin with Angel. By the way, isn't that a great name? You, you want to say angel, but it's Angel Rodriguez. This is from his book, Spanning the Abyss, How the Atonement Brings God and Humanity Together. So I'm reading there on the plane his chapter, Atonement and Cosmic Cleansing. And he reminds us how central this cleansing is to the, to the very theme of the twin book, okay? The twin book to Leviticus in the New Testament is Leviticus. Uh, I'm sorry, is Hebrews. The twin book, Hebrews is the twin to Leviticus. There, we got it. So now, jot this down first and then we'll look at it. We'll look at Hebrews. Angel writing here, cleansing. Cleansing as an image of atonement presupposes that we understand sin as a contaminating agent that needs to be removed in order to restore things to their pristine original state. Who would challenge that? Sin contaminates. Want it removed. Next sentence. This is particularly the case in the book of Hebrews, in which the image of cleansing, jot that down, reaches an important level of significance within salvation history. The idea that Christ made purification for sins is central in the epistle to the Hebrews. Central. This idea of purification and cleansing is central to Hebrews. To prove it, let's just take a look. Real quick, we want to go to Hebrews 9, but notice how Hebrews opens in Hebrews 1. So the page number in your pew Bible, that would be page 804. Hebrews chapter 1. Opening salvo in the introduction. Catch this. Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's just read verse 3. The writer of Hebrews is extolling the, the centrality of the second person of the Godhead. And he describes him in verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3. The Son, speaking of Christ, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Now, here it comes. After He had provided purification, there it is. After He had provided purification of sin, for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. He didn't sit down to twiddle His thumbs for the rest of eternity. He sat down because the first stage has been done and now He moves into another stage. He sits down to work. Alright? Purification. In fact, jot it down there in the study guide. Through His life and death, Christ has brought about purification or cleansing. Because the word can be translated cleansing. The, the Greek word you see there in your study guide, katharismos, From whence comes our word catharsis. When you say, oh, that was a cathartic experience for me. I needed to get that off my chest. That was catharsis for me. That's the word. It means cleansing, purification. Calvary brought about purification or cleansing from sin. And then to prove it, get this. Now, here's here's where it gets fascinating. The writer of Hebrew now plunges into that cleansing. And he shows in chapter 9 three essential cleansings that are achieved 
by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three of them. This was new for me. I want to share it with you. Jot it down. Cleansing number one. Three essential cleansings of Christ's sacrifice. Hebrews 9. Just turn a few pages to Hebrews 9. Then jot this down. Cleansing number one for past sin. All right, let's read it. For past sin. This would be verse 15. Hebrews 9. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that He has died as a ransom to set them free. Now watch this. From the sins committed under the first covenant. That's code language. Under the first covenant describes all of the human race, the friends of God who lived long before there ever was a Calvary. Hey, listen, ladies and gentlemen, come on, figure this out. When Abel, the first, when Abel slit the throat of that innocent lamb, when he slit the throat, do you think the blood of that lamb cleansed him any more than the bananas and oranges that Cain heaped up on his altar? Neither one cleansed. What's going on? The great Bible Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, they all lived, believing that one day would come the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By faith. So when Jesus died, that sacrifice covers everybody before Calvary. Cleansing number one, for past sin. Write it down. Cleansing number two, for present sin. Cleansing number two for present sin. Take a look at uh, verse 14. Verse right above it. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences. There's that key word again. Cleanse our consciences, His blood, from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Somebody has quipped. There is no softer pillow than a clear conscience. Isn't that true? When you and I go to bed, as we do sometimes with a guilty conscience, who sleeps well? No softer pillow than a clear conscience. Jesus dies so that those of us living post-Calvary are be covered, cleansed. You know what, my friend? I don't know how you slept last night, but i got some good news for you. You're going to sleep great tonight if you claim the promise. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're going to sleep well tonight if you claim that promise. There are three cleansings. Cleansing number one. For past sin, cleansing number two. For present sin, cleansing number three. And we would expect this to be for future sin, but it's not. How can it be for future sin? There is no such thing as future sin. We have no future sin. The only sins you and I have are present or past. So this is cleansing number three for future judgment. Write that down, please. Hebrews 9, in fact, keep, keep writing. Hebrews 9 binds together the ancient day of atonement with a future day of judgment. Take a look at this. Did you get that down? Future, ancient day of atonement linked to the future day of judgment. Let's, pick, let's drop down to the end of the chapter, verse 22, Hebrews 9. In fact, the writer reminding us, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed. There's that key word again. Be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
It was necessary, verse 23 then, for the copies of the earthly things, that would be the earthly sanctuary, to be purified. Same in the Greek, same word as cleansed. To be cleansed with these sacrifices. Oh, but the heavenly things, that would be the sanctuary in heaven, themselves cleansed with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Verse 25, nor did He enter heaven to offer Himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year. With blood that is not His own. Verse 26, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now, here it comes. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So hit the pause button right there. I've got to ask you this. Did Calvary do away with sin? Yes or no? Well, let's just, let's just answer the question this way. Do you sin? Do I sin? How do you know? <laughs> of course we sin. Calvary has not done away with sin. Something else is happening here. Whatever's going to get done away with will obviously have to be done in the future. It eventually will get done away with. So, now the writer of Hebrews goes on. Just, verse 27, just as man and woman are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, here it comes, day of atonement and judgment, bound together, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And He will appear a second time not to bear sin. No more sin treatment when He comes back. Hallelujah. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. What's going on here? Jot it down, will you, in your study guide, please. What Calvary provided is the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb of God that would eventually cleanse the record of sin from God's sanctuary above and the presence of sin in God's people below. Dual cleansing. While the cleansing is going on up there, it's going on in here. Keep your pen moving. Clearly, there is a Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement cleansing that comes at the end of time in the judgment immediately preceding the return of Christ. Rodriguez writes, put it on the screen for you in Hebrews, the cleansing of the sanctuary refers to the realities of the final judgment, the consummation of the salvation of God's people, and the ultimate defeat of evil power. Thus, the epistle unveils the typological, or we would say this symbolical significance of the Day of Atonement, enriching our understanding of the work of Christ for us. End quote. How's that old gospel hymn go? We have heard a joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the glad news all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Hallelujah. Jesus saves by offering cleansing for sin and sinners past. Jesus saves for offering cleansing for sin and sinners present. And Jesus saves by offering cleansing for the final day of judgment, the day of atonement before the end of time. Past, present, and future. Hallelujah. Jesus saves. What do you say? Ladies and gentlemen, you can't get good news any better than that. He saves. It's that future Yom Kippur cleansing that Daniel so powerfully depicts. I want to end with this. I want to go back to the book of Daniel. I wish, oh, man, I wish we had a DVD. I wish I could have Googled this. And these two dramatic moments, if we could put them on the big screen right now. We can't do it. You're going to have to let your imagination just drink in the detail. Go back to Daniel chapter 7. Two dramatic scenes. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. And this will be page 602 in your pew Bible. Daniel chapter 7. We've been there before. This is probably the last time we'll be in Daniel 7. 
Daniel 7. Drop down to verse 9. Daniel's in vision. He's taken up to the very temple of God. The series, series title is The Temple. So we're looking at what concerns the temple. Daniel chapter 7. He's taken up to the temple. Drop down to verse 9. Well, it's taken me forever to find Daniel 7. Here it is. Daniel 7 verse 9. Now, let, let, let your imagination just, just drink this in. As I looked in vision, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took His seat. That would be God the Father. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of His head was white like wool. And His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire. Have you ever seen those volcanoes? Those volcanoes at night, the river of fire just flowing orange. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands attended Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. Hold on to your pew because here it comes. The court was seated and the books were opened. Dramatic scene number one. When we looked at this last time, we talked about these three obviouslys. Obviously, this is a court scene. Come on. I see some lawyers here. Evidentiary records are brought. It's a court scene. Obviously, number two, this courtroom is convened in the very throne room of God. It takes place in God's temple. It's obvious. His throne is there. His throne's always in the temple. And finally, obviously, number three, the court is convened before the end, just before the end of the world. It's not rocket science. It's right there. Now, What's fascinating is that what Daniel 7 depicts, its twin chapter, Daniel 8, picks up. We run them parallel. You know why? Because same progression of global powers, same ruthless religious political power destroying God's people, and suddenly the same convened celestial judgment just before the end of time. Only notice now how it's depicted. Just turn the page to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Notice now the metaphor. It switches. And he said to me, Daniel 8:14 For 2300 days then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Do you know why we know that these are twin events? Number 1 because they follow the same progression through their literary development. Number 2, the language used here for cleansed it's, a, it's in its particular form is unusual in the Hebrew, but it's nistak, which is a technical term that that can be translated uh, justified or acquitted. It's a courtroom term. But what's so fascinating about this word is that it can also be used as a synonym for purify or cleanse. So it's a, it's a word that goes both ways. Courtroom. And finally, number three, it has to be a parallel event because Yom Kippur, the cleansing of the sanctuary, that's the Day of Atonement. And what's the Day of Atonement a symbol of? It's a symbol of the final judgment of earth before the end of time. There it is. Only what's, what's extremely interesting is that in Daniel 8, God inserts a timeline. 2,300 days. Now, there's some people who say, ah, those are literal days. That figures out to, you know, just a few months in the time of Daniel. You know why we know that they are not literal days? Because of Daniel's obvious, obvious reaction to what he's just seen. You, you need to hear the words of the angel, the last words of the angel who is interpreting this vision for Daniel. Drop down Daniel 8 to verse 26. Just before Gabriel disappears, he says these words. Now, Daniel, this vision of the evenings and mornings, the 2300 days that has been given you, is true. But seal up the vision. Now, notice the words of the angel. For it concerns the distant future. 
There is no way, Jose, that you can say, this was happening right at the time of Daniel. Daniel himself is sick because he knows that it covers the distant future. And he thinks it means that his people, the Jews, will never get to go back to Jerusalem unless this massive time span takes place. And that's why you have Daniel's reaction here in verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and I lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business and I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Worried, sick over his people Israel. Chapter 9 finds him praying. He is pleading. You ever get into a prayer like that with God where you're begging Him? You ever have those prayers? You're begging God. He is pleading God. Pleading with God to do something to forgive Israel their rebellion and sin, restore Israel from exile to their holy land and their holy city of Jerusalem. And at the end of that passionate, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture, earnest prayer of Daniel, suddenly Gabriel rematerializes in his prayer room. And Gabriel begins to give to Daniel the clue to the timeline you and I have just discovered. In fact, jot this down, will you? In your study guide. In what the English physicist and Bible scholar Isaac Newton would later call the crown jewel. Newton found Daniel 9 to be the crown jewel of the Old Testament. Jot that down. What's happening here? Keep reading. Gabriel gives to Daniel the stunning prophetic timeline for the Messiah's coming to Daniel's people as the beginning point for the even more astounding timeline for the commencement of God's final Yom Kippur judgment in heaven. So I'm going to give it all to you. Right now. Crown jewel of the Old Testament. Listen to Rodriguez now. You have the words in your study guide. Contextual analysis, writes this Bible scholar, contextual analysis allows the interpreter of the prophecy to determine the 2,300-day period as beginning in 457 B.C. and ending in A.D. 1844. Now read on. Many Christians consider that aspect of the apocalyptic vision offensive. Such an attitude is understandable, although not acceptable. It is understandable in that those who have grown under the influence of the rationalism of modernism are unwilling to accept that a human being could make predictions that receive their fulfillment 2,300 years later. But that attitude is not acceptable because Scripture should determine the assumptions and presuppositions of the reader and not the other way around. The interpretation of prophecy is not arbitrary. It has been reaffirmed on exegetical and theological grounds End quote. What's he saying? He's saying it's rock solid. You can affirm it on the authority of the Word of God. Now, some of you are hearing this for the very first time. I want to tell you something. You need to go deeper. And so on our website, we've put a teaching, a video teaching I made some years ago. It's entitled, The Spectacular Prophecy Nostradamus Missed. The box was set up yesterday. You can go to our website right now and that will be waiting for you. When you've got some time, click on. Take a look. Examine for yourself. What does all this mean for you and me? Let me allow the Bible scholar after whom this university was named to respond. John Nevins Andrews, our namesake. Listen to this. Nine years after the Great Disappointment. Have you heard of the Great Disappointment? When the followers of that... Uh, Baptist farmer turned preacher William Miller gathered with him, believing, mistakenly believing that the cleansing of the sanctuary here in Daniel 8 meant the cleansing of the earth with fire at the return of Christ. They were waiting for Jesus to come October 22, 1844. 
Nine years after that bitter disappointment, young, by the way, he was a young scholar, John Andrews would write a book entitled The Sanctuary and 2300 Days in which he arrived at this categorical conclusion. Put it on the screen for you. Our namesake writing these words, The man does not live who can overthrow the chronological argument which terminates the 2,300 days at that time, October 22, 1844. Our namesake said it's rock solid. What's that mean? It means that we can stand on Leviticus and we can stand on Hebrews and Andrews and we can stand on the Word of God. Did you know that God said, I'm going to set a day for judgment? Jot this down. Put it, put it in your study guide. Two times God said, I'm setting a date. This would be Psalm 75, verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, God speaking, I will judge with equity. I'm going to set the time. When I set that time, judgment begins. And Paul comes along and acts before the brightest minds in Athens and makes, get this, to this academic community, Paul makes the very same point. There has been a day set for judgment. Look at this. Acts 17, verse 31. For He, God, has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. That would be Christ Jesus. And the day is set. Ladies and gentlemen, the day is set in Daniel 8, 14. You know what that means? That means that Daniel 7, 9, and 10 is happening right now. While we're sitting here, getting ready for the benediction. It's happening right now. Judgment in heaven. Some of you are into football. Everybody who knows about football knows that there is an official timeout near the end of the game called the two-minute warning. Isn't that true? Two-minute warning. When you hear that two-minute warning, you've, you had better get your strategy in line. You had better get your act together because the clock is now going to tick down to zero. Now, it's true. If you have a timeout left, you can stop the clock. But when you're all out of timeouts, baby, there is nothing you can do. It will just count down to zero. The officials will not stop the clock. You may have a timeout left in your pocket. Well, I think I'll just play my timeout right about now. My friend, that's your last timeout. When that's gone, the clock counts down and cannot be stopped. Since 1844. That's what Daniel 8.14 is telling us. Since 1844, the earth has been under a two-minute warning. Now, there have been timeouts here and timeouts there. But one day, we're out of all the timeouts left. And the clock counts down to zero. The destiny of the human race, as we're counting down now, is being decided. The destiny. Two-minute warning time. Shall we be afraid of that? You kidding? You're not going to be afraid of that, are you? Now, Felix was. The Roman governor Felix, when Paul had a chance to preach to him, do you know what Paul preached on? He preached on the judgment. And Felix trembled, the Bible says. You know why? Because he had stuff in his life that he didn't want the light of judgment to ever see. So I don't want that teaching. I don't want it. Well, why? who would want it? If you're hiding something, who would want the teaching? Felix didn't want it. You don't have to be afraid. We've, we've already had God, God on the docket, you and I, and we discovered that the entire divine court is on our side. I mean, how can you get better news than that? The entire court, the hero of heaven, Christ. Look at the seven roles of Christ. The hero of heaven, number one, he's defense attorney. 
Number two, he's friend of the court. Number three, he's mediator. Number four, he's high priest. Number five, he's substitute. Number six, he's savior. And get this, hallelujah. Number seven, he's the judge. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't take rocket science to know that when your defense attorney is also your judge, you win every single time. Impossible to lose. You have to have your defense attorney be the judge. That's the trick. Just ask him. Just ask him to be your attorney. And in those nail-scarred hands, he will never lose a case. Ever, 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 ever. Just ask him. Now tell me, will you, that this is bad news? What do you want God to do? Just run the sin problem forever and ever? Amen? Are you kidding? Two-minute warning, earth. By the way, it was very fair of God to tell us. He doesn't give us the date to Christ's return because if He had given us the date to Christ's return, we would have waited until the day before Jesus comes. Oh, I'm ready now. And we wouldn't have been ready. No friendship. You can't get married after knowing a girl for one day. Oh, you can. No, you need time to grow a relationship. Then we get married. That's the way it is. So he said, I'm going to be fair to you. I'm going to tell you, when the divine clock hits two-minute warning, when it's two-minute warning, trust me, at any point now, no timeouts. I'm back. Ladies and gentlemen, is that fair of God or what? You got a problem with that? I'm glad he told us. I love how this Yom Kippur website ends its depiction. Put it on the screen for you. It's in your study guide. The day. Yom Kippur is the most solemn of the year. Yet, oh, isn't this beautiful? An undertone of joy suffuses it. A joy that revels in the spirituality of the day and expresses confidence that God will accept our repentance. God will forgive our sins. God will seal our verdict for a year of life and health and happiness. I love that. The spirit of joy suffuses. It just is woven through Yom Kippur. You don't have to be afraid of this day. This is great news. I'm about ready to put the zero on the clock. And you won't have to live with this ever again. I promise you. Ever, ever again. But what's what's adding a note of urgency to this homecoming, of course, is the fact that we're in the judgment right now. I know you can't see anything. We're in the judgment right now. You know what that means? That means that the spiritual victories that we had put off can no longer be put off. That means the moral cleansing that we have delayed can be delayed no longer. That means the divine mission to tell the world that the end is near is a mission that is right now. We have got to do it now. J.N. Andrews is absolutely right. The namesake of this university. We are in the hour of His judgment. It is Earth's two-minute warning time. And so I want to end with an appeal. I want to appeal to you and to me. If there's anything in your life right now that needs cleansing, this would be a very good time to give it to Jesus. If there's anything in your life right now that needs to be cleansed out of your life, this would be the perfect time. You're saying, Dwight, what are you talking about? Let me put it this way so that we can understand this. If Jesus came tonight, 
If Jesus came tonight, would you be ready? If he came tonight, if you've given him everything, just cleansed it out. You say, well, no, I mean, I got this. That's what I'm talking about. Whatever that this is, this is the time to let him cleanse it out of your life. Why would you want to keep it? If it's going to stand between you and eternity, why would you want to hang on to this? Do you understand? This is two-minute warning, and the clock has already started. You got a timeout in your pocket? That may be your last one, my friend. Go ahead and play it today. You'll put it off for another day. But when that other day comes, there'll be no timeout left. I want to invite you and me, as alumni, students, and faculty, and community, inhabitants of this planet, I want to invite you and me to decide, you know what? Right now, this is cleansing time. Whatever's in your life right now, let Jesus cleanse it out of your life. That's great news. He can do it. I have two appeals. That was the first appeal. The second appeal is that because this is two-minute warning time, we have got to mobilize a generation that with their young adult energy can storm this planet for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm so proud of the 3,500 students here at Andrews University. This is a generation that has been set up by God to storm the final generation in the two-minute warning time. A generation of young adults. So here's the deal, young adults. Here's the deal. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to hit the pause button on your journey through Andrews University for two weeks? Two weeks. And do some short-term mission project for Christ. But maybe not two weeks. Maybe you would be willing to do it for three months. Would you be willing to give three months of your time? Go somewhere on this planet in this two-minute warning hour and say, Hey, guys, I'm over here. I'm a young adult just like you. I have something I need to share with you. I want to share Jesus with you right now. Would you be willing to give a half a year? Maybe even a year. Here's the deal. One year. Put a pause on your academic journey. Just a pause. And while you have this energy, and while Jesus is speaking to you, just say, I'm going to go. I'll go as a student missionary. I want to invite you, if you're a young adult, and would be willing to give that time for the two-minute warning of God's mission on this planet, anywhere on earth, anywhere on earth, if you'd be willing to go, and you're a young adult, I'd like to invite you to come out of that pew and to come right here to the front and say, all right, Dwight, it's two-minute warning time. I'm willing. I'm willing to give that slot. Some of you have already signed up to be a student missionary in the year after this. I want you to come forward as well. Affirm that decision. I'm willing to give two weeks, three months, you pick the time, but give. Hit the pause button right now and give of yourself. If you'd be willing to do that, would you mind coming out of the pew where you're sitting? sitting? Step on a whole lot of feet and make your way like these are right now. Make your way to the front. Just come. 
You haven't signed up for student mission? I, didn't even, I haven't even thought about being a student missionary, do I? Well, my point is, nobody's going tomorrow. I don't know what the details need to be for you, but you could make yourself willing. You can say, God, I'm willing to even interrupt my academic journey to help this two-minute warning time on earth to get the word of the Lord Jesus Christ out. I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll teach English. Maybe I'll dig wells in Borneo. I don't know what it is, but I want to help the kingdom of Christ. I want to go. When will you go? I have no idea. You sit down and talk with the people in campus ministry, they would know. But in this time of two-minute warning, would you be willing to go? Any others from the back? How about in the overflow in overflow in the uh, youth chapel. You'd be willing to say, God, take me. I'm willing to go. God bless you. Any others? You're not making a commitment to me, even to Andrews University. You're just saying, hey, Jesus, I'm willing. If you can work it out, I don't even know if you can work it out, but if you can work it out, I'd be willing to go.